And welcome to the Synopsis Podcast, where we break down the history, economics, culture, and geopolitics surrounding the world's other superpower. I'm Sam. And I'm Michael. And today, we are finally turning our attention to perhaps our most requested topic, the South China Sea. If you've heard anything about the South China Sea, it's probably that the People's Republic of China has been building artificial islands and engaging in a campaign of gray zone harassment against its neighbors. This aggressive territorial expansion has riled Washington as well as China's maritime neighbors. But... How did we get to this point? How has the South China Sea become a flashpoint for great power conflict? To understand what's bringing the sea to a metaphorical boiling point, we have to first understand the economic and geostrategic realities that undergird it. On April 8th, 2012, a Philippine surveillance aircraft observed eight Chinese fishing vessels intruding into Philippine maritime territory off the Scarborough Shoal, a tiny formation of rocks and reefs located less than 140 miles from the Philippines' western coast. The Philippine Navy confronted and boarded the Chinese ships, uncovering illegally caught fish, coral, and shellfish. The Philippine sailors attempted to arrest the Chinese crews, but were stopped by the arrival of two Chinese PLA Navy ships. The two sides sat at a standstill until the United States stepped in to mediate a deal under which both sides would, at least temporarily, pull back from the shoal. The Philippine Navy withdrew. However, the Chinese ships in large part remained. Officials on both sides disagree on what exactly was agreed upon under the deal, but what's important to note is that de facto control of the Scarborough Shoal now rests in the hands of the PRC, as both the United States and the Philippines declined to press the issue with force any further as the Chinese ships held firm. China has since declared the shoal to be Chinese territory, regularly harassing, ramming, firing water cannons at, and arresting Philippine ships that wander too close without Chinese permission. This is the status quo that persists to this day. Right. So as I said in the introduction, how did we get to this point? To really make sense of it all, we have to first understand what the South China Sea is and why it's so important. Connected to the Pacific Ocean and bounded by and partially laid claim to China, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, Brunei, the Philippines, and Taiwan, the South China Sea is one of the most economically and militarily important bodies of water on the planet. Not least of which because it's incredibly resource-rich. It accounts for approximately 10% of the world's global fisheries, as well as containing an estimated 11 billion barrels of oil and 190 trillion cubic feet of natural gas underneath its surface. This dwarfs in comparison, however, to the real importance of the South China Sea, which is that it accounts for approximately one-third of the entire world's global maritime shipping trade passing through annually, worth over $3 trillion a year. You know, and this is important to note that shipping is the modal form of transportation in the world uh, for the world economy. So having a 30% share of the predominant means of transport is an enormous relative value for the rest of the world. Uh, The South China Sea is really comparable in character to the Mediterranean insofar as it's a majorly important body of water for a number of different nations with their own competing interests and ideologies that all have to make use of a common resource. Uh, Kind of on the topic of comparison between the Mediterranean, the Suez Canal, which was in the news recently when the Ever Given blocked it up, the Suez Canal only accounts for about uh, 12% of all global maritime shipping trade. So the South China Sea writ large is more than twice as important as the Suez Canal. It's not just a globally important body of water either. These are there are a lot of economies uh, that border the South China Sea that are almost entirely reliant upon the economic activity in the South China Sea to maintain their uh, their standards of living. Countries like Vietnam, the Philippines, and Indonesia these are expressly maritime nations, right? 
Something else that I want to uh, highlight here uh, in regards to its importance specifically to China is that China is the world's biggest importer of energy. And about 80% of their oil flows through this the choke points in the South China Sea. So it is of absolute geostrategic imperative to Beijing to have some sort of sovereignty and some sort of control over what's going on uh, in this body of water. Yeah, so, so just to jump in and clarify briefly, um, you know, Mike was alluding to the energy security concerns that Beijing has. Um, most of China's energy flows through the South China Sea currently, and Mike mentioned choke points. It's worth taking a pause of this podcast and looking on a map to see the character of the South China Sea. It has very, very narrow entry, entry and exit points into the broader ocean, and a lot of these are controlled by nations that are at best agnostic towards China and at worst, you know, maybe a little worried about China's ambitions. Yeah, China doesn't have a whole lot of true friends. They don't have any true friends, really. They don't have any in that in that part of the world. I mean, Vietnam, they've invaded not so long ago within living memory. There's <laughs> Taiwan, there's the Philippines, who we just covered, you know, has a has a tempestuous relationship with China at best. Now, just to highlight this a little bit further, a lot of you have probably heard about the Belt and Road Initiative, this being the new uh, Chinese Silk Road that the uh, Chinese government's throwing godly amounts of money at worldwide, building bridges and ports and various infrastructure projects. Of which we did a podcast about, check it out. Of which we did, yeah, we did do an episode about. Um, the number one target for Chinese investment is Pakistan. Okay, so what, what does Pakistan have to do with this? They care about Pakistan because Pakistan has a land bridge with China that could afford China to import oil without having to worry about these South China Sea choke points. Now, there's no way you're ever going to get the same economy out of you know transporting this stuff via rail as opposed to by the sea. But a lot of noise gets made about the African investments that the Chinese are making. Pakistan gets more money than the entire continent of Africa does from China. You can see the geostrategic importance of the South China Sea to China reflected in where they choose to spend their cash. Now, admittedly, there is a secondary concern of counterbalancing India. But, you know, again, we're talking about more than all the money they're throwing at Africa. China's ability to maintain energy security uh, via either control of the South China Sea or the creation of alternate means of transport of energy from the Middle East is a key element of what makes the South China Sea so important to China right now. Before we get too far over our skis about why China's doing this and what exactly is motivating them to take these steps, it's probably worth taking a step back and reviewing what exactly those steps look like. Yeah, so as I alluded to at the top of this episode, one of the most notable events going on in the South China Sea is China's building of artificial islands in it. Uh, the South China Sea is broadly characterized by a bunch of uh, tiny rock formations, reefs, uh, like little protrusions above the ocean that have the basis to be transformed into islands, which is exactly what China is doing. China is dredging up literal tons and tons and tons of sand in order to transform these tiny uh, rock formations into full-on artificial islands. And, and these rock formations are not just uh, you know vacation destinations for the Chinese citizenry. No, in fact, you know, there's a lot of really notable expansion going on. Uh, yeah, expansion in the form of airstrips, uh, barracks, ship bases, deep water ports, all kinds of intense military and economic buildup uh, taking place in these islands. Um, and just to give a sense of the scale, um, this is happening predominantly in two island chains that you may or may not have heard of. One is called the Spratly Island Chain, which is located a little bit closer to the Philippines, sort of central in the South China Sea. And the other are the Paracel Islands, which are pretty close to the coast of Vietnam and just south of the Chinese uh, island of Hainan, which, by the way, houses their nuclear submarine fleet. So strategically important to Beijing in that regard. 
Now, the speed of the development and the construction, really, of these islands has either slowed down or stopped outright amid the protestations of the United States and China's neighbors in the South China Sea. But at this point in time, in 2021, they've built something like seven or eight in the Paracels and a further seven or eight in the Spratly Islands. So they have all that they need uh, for their purposes in the South China Sea, geostrategically speaking. Yeah, and that's not all. As Mike gave a really great example at at the beginning of this episode, in addition to the creation of artificial islands, China is engaged in a campaign of gray zone harassment and uh, what's known as salami slicing against its neighbors. What it's doing is kind of couching its military um, operations in civilian vessels and using quote-unquote fishing vessels to make aggressive claims within the within territory claimed by other nations uh, in the South China Sea. Again, Mike's example at the top being a really good one. They hunt uh, for fish so, with machine guns. <laughs> you know, and it just so happens, machine guns. Yeah, it just so happens that that scares off uh, sailors of other ethnicities or other nations. <laughs> so it's like, um, <clears throat> But this is broadly representative of China's territorial ambitions writ large insofar as they will go inch by inch very slowly and, you know, retreat back to their previous limits when they receive pushback. But if not, you know, just keep on going. And if you play that scenario out a thousand, a hundred, you know, a million times, whatever, eventually you're going to amass a large chunk of territory, which is now firmly under their control. If you listened to our India-China uh, episode, you'll this is actually the same sort of tactics that's been going on in the Himalayan borders between the two countries. Yeah, indeed, in just about every part of the world where China has some sort of a border conflict, they like to push and see how far they can get. Not that that's uniquely Chinese behavior, but it is what they've been engaging in in the South China Sea, whereas maybe the island building has stopped. This is an active campaign that continues on. And to clarify, these are Chinese Navy and Coast Guard ships that are doing this under the guise of being civilian fishing vessels. But, you know, civilian fishing vessels don't get lashed together and barricade others out of the islands. And, you know, they don't ram other nations' fishing vessels and sink them, which they've done to Vietnam uh, not so long ago. In fact, even in the news, I think uh, two weeks ago, this is, uh, this is April 2021 when we're recording, uh, very recently there was a, another standoff involving, I believe, the Philippines, but this time Philippine and U.S. Navy ships actually confronted the Chinese and they retreated you know, for now. Who knows what they'll do a week from now, but this is something that uh, China is definitely very active in to this day. So we've talked about what China's doing. We've also touched on the why and what makes the South China Sea so important to China, but I want to flesh that section out just a little bit more. If you look on a map, right to the northeast of the South China Sea is the East China Sea. Shocker. Um, it, we're not going to be talking about the East China Sea so much in this episode, and I just want to touch on why briefly. Uh, like the South China Sea, it's bound in by a bunch of nations, except this time it's South Korea, Japan, and Taiwan. And in contrast to some of the nations named earlier on, think about you know the Philippines, Indonesia, all this stuff, the, the nations that box China in on the East China Sea are much more stable, powerful democracies than the other nations and kind of leaves less room for China to exploit. Also, um, there is a significant U.S. Uh, US Navy presence in the form of bases on Okinawa, for instance, that really preclude China from making the moves that it has in the South China Sea. And last, last point is that the East China Sea doesn't have the same amount of islands that we've talked about as in the South China Sea that has given China the opportunity to kind of create forward bases in the form of these artificial islands. It also doesn't grant access to the Indian Ocean, which is, again, where most of the oil is flowing through. So economically, it's not quite as important, though control of the East China Sea would still grant China access to the Pacific, which is 
can be accomplished through control of either the South or the East China Sea, right? And so this is another actual big uh, concern for Beijing, uh, given that they have set their intention to be the world's number one military power by the year 2049. 2049 being the 100th anniversary of the communist takeover of China, just for background. Yeah, that's right. Um, Part of the reason this is so important is because a global power in this day and age requires a global naval presence. In fact, not even in this day and age. It's been the case ever since Rome and Carthage or, you know, the Great British Empire. So, so as a point of comparison, think about the United States. If you are about our age, dear listener, then the United States has been at war for most of your life, if not all of it. Uh, the strikingly notable characteristic of which, though, is that it's never been on our own shores. It's always been far abroad. Our ability to do so is a function of our world-class Navy and also the ability to move that Navy around the globe. We have weak and friendly neighbors to our north and south and wide open oceans to our east and west. China, as you can see by listening to this episode now, is not so lucky in terms of its geographic advantage. And not only that, but as you suggested earlier, most of the countries that form that geographic barrier, that island chain uh, that boxes China in, they aren't super friendly with the Chinese. In fact, most of them, I would say, lean a little bit more towards the United States. Now, whether that's because of political necessity and the security the United States Navy provides, or whether it's for ideological reasons, I can't really say. But the fact remains that the Chinese feel very much boxed in and want to secure that access to the Pacific. Again, you know, we mentioned it once before in this episode, but just worth repeating. Both the East China Sea and South China Sea is characterized by choke points, and that's why we keep using the term boxed in. If there were to be an alliance formed against China, China's ability to access the ocean would be severely limited, if not outright constrained. You're right. No, there, there is not a single location along this entire island chain where Chinese ships could safely uh, egress without being intercepted from both la- from all from all the trifecta, right, land, sea, and air. Um, it's it's so tightly constrained. Now, of course, the primary strategic concern for the Chinese is interference by the United States. There's there's actually a big elephant in the room that I think we haven't really discussed yet, and that's Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan is, reunification with Taiwan is arguably the number one goal of the People's Republic of China to be accomplished within the next 20 or odd years. Um, And it's sort of up in the air, but also kind of understood that they're going to get some amount of aid from the United States. It's just we don't know if it's going to take the form of military. Them being Taiwan, just just for clarity, them them being Taiwan in this example. Right. right. Um, (laughs) Just it was a little unclear how you said that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it should come as any surprise if you're into geopolitics, you know, what what exactly we're talking about here. Now, Chinese now solidified Chinese control of the South China Sea could do a lot to force the United States military out beyond a comfortable range of engagement uh, to actually assist the Taiwanese in the event of a war. Uh, Primarily, the Chinese are concerned with building a a network of area denial capability based on hypersonic missiles that can target things like aircraft carriers, uh, aircraft themselves. And this this is perhaps a reality closer than I think a lot of our listeners will realize. I just, not too long ago, was talking about the great and powerful United States Navy. But as you can see from listening to this episode so far, China has made very serious intent to increase its local superiority within the South China Sea via the creation of these islands, the territorial expansion, the ability to project force well into the heart of the sea. Um, this, this definitely makes a conflict in the South China Sea one that it's absolutely not a sure thing that the United States could prevail in in a number of years if trends continue, trademark. (laughs) If trends continue, which they rarely do. We will see. I mean, the important thing to understand is that these islands that China has built, for one, they function very much like unsinkable aircraft carriers, just an extra little bit of oomph for China to project its power beyond its immediate shoreline. 
um, which is something that they can't do otherwise, because as far as actual aircraft carriers go, they only have two active right now, and one of them is some old, outdated Ukrainian design that's going to spontaneously combust any minute now. Um, there's another major consideration for the United States military for looking at it from their point of view, and that's that, uh, as we've said a million times, the South China Sea is boxed in by choke points. The other thing that characterizes it is that it's very shallow. And in shallow waters with a lot of choke points, it's relatively easy to keep tabs on submarine movements. And submarines are one of the best concealed platforms for things like ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, or anti-ship missiles. It's one of the gravest threats to any world-class Navy because they're so hard to detect. Right now, it's relatively easy to notice when a Chinese sub leaves port and they can't dive deep enough to evade detection in most circumstances. However, if they were to secure access to the Pacific, suddenly you're living in a world where Chinese nuclear subs could potentially be off the coast of Hawaii and we wouldn't actually know. That's a very scary place to be if you're an American aircraft carrier. Yeah, no, these are all good points. But I want to pull back for a second and kind of discuss how China is justifying its claims to the South China Sea, because this is something we haven't really touched upon. We've sort of been working on a might makes rights principle, and that's definitely something China's employing. But just like everything else, they do, but just like lots of powers, they try to operate on numerous axes, both in this case militarily as well as uh, internationally and politically. Uh, so what do I mean by that? So China employs a eat its cake and have it too approach to the South China Sea by justifying its territorial claims in two methods, the first of which is what's known as the Nine Dash Line. The Nine Dash Line is enormous. It stretches over 800 miles off of China's shores at its furthest point, and the podcast is an audio format, but again, this is worth pausing just to take a look so you can see the sheer scope of the territorial claims made by China. It's the entire again, South the China Sea, effectively. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, how does China use this? So how does China, how does China justify this claim? Oh, well, I mean, the map where the Nine Dash Line originally came up was actually a British creation back during the days of the... Uh, the uh, nationalist Kuomintang controlling China. So this is pre-communist China where this map originates from. The Chinese didn't claim this. The Chinese didn't draw this. Some British guy draw it, continuing the long stoic tradition of British-drawn lines leading to international great power conflict. <laughs> so the... Uh, see India. See India. So the, so the nationalists took this map, and <laughs> this map was already inaccurate to begin with when it was drawn, and I believe that they then copied it inaccurately as well. And over time, the number of dashes which is, it's like a dashed line is what we're referring to. The number of dashes has actually either increased or decreased depending on what's geostrategically prudent to the Chinese at the time. For example, the original map included a dash around the Gulf of Tonkin uh, in Vietnam. However, that dash was later taken away, I guess, when it became clear that the Chinese didn't really want to start another war with Vietnam or have any beef with them, politically speaking. Uh, so that was taken away. Then later, one was added to encompass all of Taiwan, whereas the original version had a dash originating from the south of Taiwan. Now it just outright includes it. So if this all sounds confusing and kind of like arbitrary, that's only because it is. As we've discussed in previous episodes, the historical truthfulness of certain claims is much less important to the CCP than the usefulness that it conveys. And in this case, yeah, China would like to control the South China Sea. So here's some lines on a map that the British drew up a number of years ago. Right? Yeah, yeah, this is why this is legit. South China Sea. Legit. Checks Super out. legit. Yeah. But um, I said... China is employing a eat its cake and have it too sort of approach to this. So what do I mean by that? Well, China is also attempting to 
expand what's known as its exclusive economic zone, which we'll get to in just a second, off of the coast of its artificial islands, which we've already talked about. The exclusive economic zone, or EEZ, is a United Nations construction under what's known as UNCLOS, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. What UNCLOS says is that countries are granted a 200 nautical mile EEZ off of their shores. This EEZ provides them economic advantage, shocking, and acts as a limited territoriality in which other countries' ships can pass through but do nothing more. They're not permitted to, you know, conduct activities or go fishing or whatever. Um, <clears throat> so, as I was saying, China is claiming that these islands, which they've made up out of whole cloth, convey them another 200-mile easy off their shore, which, again, if you were to take that at face value, practically touches the shores of other nations. Yeah, so to clarify, these are the rules that the majority of countries in the world use to uh, demarcate their territory at sea. You get 200 miles off of your shore to do whatever you want, uh, and that rule does ex does actually apply to islands as well, which is kind of significant given that I uh, China is attempting to build and take over islands in the South China Sea. However, the uh, International Court of Arbitration has ruled that these are only rocks, not islands. They're not going to just give it to China that easy. So an important element of EEZs is that they have a use it or lose it characteristic to them. What do I mean by that? If you're familiar with trademark copyright law at all, you'll know that once a term becomes a generic parlance within the language, it actually loses its uh, protected status. What do I mean by that? Think about the word Band-Aid. At a certain point in time, that referred to a specific brand's individual product. However, now we just use that term for an adhesive strip that you put on your skin when you get a cut. In much the same way, once an EEZ has been internationally proven to not be uh, defensible, recognized, etc., by other countries, then it, then it stops losing its territorial claims. So, the United States has been conducting what's known as freedom of navigation actions within the South China Sea, specifically around the areas that China controls or claims to control, either via the Nine Dash Line or the 200-mile EEZs off of the artificial islands. Uh, so what this means is that the U.S. Navy has been really wandering around aimlessly doing a bunch of stuff. Again, under EEZs, you're permitted to go directly from point A to point B, transit through an EEZ. But, so the U.S. Navy has been going from point A and then stopping and then point C and turning around and conducting activities and, you know, sunbathing on their aircraft carriers, you name it, just to show the world, hey, you know what, we don't see this as Chinese territory. And that actually matters. It's not just thumbing your nose, nose at Beijing, but it's actually establishing international precedent. And there's others that are following in the footsteps of the United States, too, importantly here. Like, the, the, the Japanese Navy is now beginning to do, uh, follow suit, as well as the Australian Air Force. So other countries are beginning to, oh, oh yeah, and, and, and the Vietnamese have even built a, a base in the Spratly Islands. Like, not the Paracels, which are very close to their shore, but the Spratlys, just to you know, add a little extra weight to these claims. Now, the other major developments uh, happening in response to Chinese activities in the South China Sea involve... Uh, mutual defense agreements with the likes of Taiwan and the Philippines. Uh, but there's an even broader coalition building what th th that's known as the Quad. And so the Quad currently consists of Australia, India, Japan, and the United States, plus maybe Great Britain, question mark, in the future sometime soon. They've been talking about it. Uh, this, again, is not something like NATO. It's not an explicit agreement to go to war if one member is attacked. But it is a budding coalition of major powers in the Pacific that are all showing a lot of concern at China's activities. And they don't name China explicitly in their written statements. But China, it, but, but China is notable in its exclusion from what would otherwise be a great power alliance within the area. Well, that, that, that and their stated yeah. objectives include things like freedom of navigation that we just went over. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, exactly. And the rule of law in the yeah. South China Sea. And I mean, if you read it, it's very clear what they're targeting. Um, and, you know, our, <laughs> we, we now have... Um, 
programs under which you know, we train Australian fighter pilots. We tra- we, the, the Taiwanese Air Force actually trains uh, stateside in the United States. Um, and of course, Japan hosts military base for the United States. India is maybe the furthest removed, but given the recent clashes on their border last summer, uh, I, I think we can expect that they're getting nudged closer and closer to uh, making this a formality. We'll see. And just to be fair, we don't want to oversell this alliance, but all of these nations listed have their own reasons why they might be tentative about formally joining something that alienates China. India has a long-standing frenemy relationship with China. Japan technically has a pacifist constitution. Australia's largest trading partner is by far China, such that, to the point that um, China's exertion over the Australian economy has really made headlines lately. And uh, the UK isn't officially in this alliance at all yet, so, or whatever we're calling it, not alliance. But, you know, so we don't want to oversell it, but there's definitely been great power mumblings about coming together to take on the growing power that is China. Yes. I mean, so long as the United States stands firm, I think it's safe to say that a lot of these countries will be willing to at least express moral support. We'll see what actually happens when rubber hits the road. Yeah. So just to kind of put meat on the bones of this, the, a Australian uh, foreign minister made news lately for having responded to the question of what is Australian's foreign policy in the area, to which he said, God bless the United States. So, <laughs> so a real keystone to understanding the South China Sea is Taiwan. As Mike mentioned just a little bit earlier on, Taiwan is Beijing's number one strategic objective within the next 20 years. And that's because Taiwan is at a dangerous intersection of both geostrategic importance as well as ideological importance. The reassimilation of Taiwan under and the removal of a Chinese democracy is of great political concern to Beijing. And then as we've discussed, if Beijing were to capture Taiwan, its ability to exert power within the South China Sea and even the East China Sea would be tremendously expanded. They could functionally choke Japan's economy off if they wanted to, right? I mean, that, that would give them complete control of the Taiwan Straits, which is only you know, barely even 100 miles wide. Um, so what exactly is the balance of power looking like? What can we maybe expect going forward? We might muse about that for the next couple minutes here. Big in the news recently is that the People's Republic of China has now built the world's, quote, largest navy uh, in, in addition to expanding their area denial capability via the ballistic missiles that we mentioned earlier. Uh, this navy has a lot of people concerned, and for good reason. However, it's worth noting that the United States Navy still far outweighs the Chinese Navy in terms of tonnage and overall quality. What makes this so concerning is that the Chinese are building a lot of coastal patrol vessels, things like destroyers, fast, small, cheap attack submarines, things that are very much contextual within the South China Sea, right? So the Chinese are very much focused on this singular theater, whereas like the American military has to be prepared for deployments in the Arctic, in the Middle East, in Patagonia, or God knows where. Exactly. Yeah, no, this is the point I made a little bit earlier on in the episode about local superiority and the fact that, well, China may not be able to match the United States Navy blow for blow in the entire world theater. It is absolutely building its capacity up to be able to outstrip the United States in a very specific context, and that is the South China Sea. And, you know, hopefully, as you can tell from listening to this episode, that's the ability to of the ability for China to control the South China Sea is just of really unparalleled importance to them. I don't think there is a sing- single geostrategic objective today that's more important to China than control of this over the South and hopefully at some point for them, East China Sea. I mean, they're willing to beat Indians with clubs over Tibet and the Himalayan mountain ranges, right? Um, and yet yeah, that, that does... That's, yeah, but that's not building artificial islands. Yeah, that, that doesn't even rise to the level of the importance of the South China Sea to Beijing. Fair, fair to say that this is their priority 
and they could be willing to come to blows over it. Um, it's a little bit up in the air as to whether or not this is going to happen soon. Um, I've heard some people, there, there was a, a U.S. Navy admiral that made a speech to uh, the U.S. Congress recently saying, I think you know China's going to invade Taiwan in the next six years. Um, how likely is that? Um, you can't rule it out, but it's worth noting that the Beijing Olympics are coming up pretty soon, which is going to be a big PR win for the Chinese if they can pull it off correctly, and it's not looking like we're going to boycott it, even though... Even though a lot of stuff that's... Even though, even though stuff... Okay. Even though <laughs> even stuff, <laughs> I don't want to inject my opinion too harshly into this episode, but... Yeah. Uh, right, okay, so we got the Beijing Olympics <laughs> what, do you, what do you call the last 25 minutes? Oh, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But beyond that, there's something that's probably even more important specifically to the leadership in China instead of just China broadly speaking. And that is the, uh, the, and that is the party congress that's coming up in 2024 at which Xi Jinping may or may not be reconfirmed as the leader of China. And you know, what we've seen in China over the last couple of years is a continuing centralization of authority and power in Xi Jinping, whereas this has kind of not been the case post Mao Zedong. There's been a real aversion to centralizing too much in one person, yet we see that there's not a whole lot of... Um... Well, it was, so just just interject briefly on that point. If you listen to our Power Problems episode, you'll know that even though Xi is powerful and centralizing his power, his reign is far from secure within the, the context of the party. So it's not unreasonable to assume that between the Beijing Olympics, and what, you know, where you would not want to draw negative international attention to yourself, and then... After that, the uh, following People's Party Congress, where all of his attention is probably going to be focused on making sure that he can retain power, it, it seems not an unreasonable prediction to make that those are going to be the two pre uh, preoccupying thoughts within the, the People's Party for the next couple of years. However, after that, and after China's had a few more years to build up its military capacities, secure its islands that it's been making, then, you know, who knows? Now, I'd, I'd love to, in the future, maybe dive deeper into what a conflict with Taiwan would look like and how likely a certain outcome might be. That's a little bit beyond the scope of this episode, but suffice to say that a failed invasion of Taiwan, if the PRC were to fully commit to it, it would absolutely just—it would destroy the Communist Party of China's legitimacy at home. There would be, yeah. there would be nothing left. They cannot afford to gamble on this and fail. Yeah, and it all ties back to the South China Sea, which is why we really wanted to do an episode on this topic and why it was so hotly requested. So all of this talk about Taiwan, you can hopefully see by now, really ties back into the South China Sea, which is why this is something that we really wanted to do an episode on and why it was so hotly requested. So to close it out, the South China Sea would not be one of the most contentious bodies of water on the planet, if not for its importance to China. Access to the Pacific Ocean, maintenance of energy security, and the ability to exert economic leverage all play into China's aggressive posturing in the South China Sea, to say nothing of Beijing's goal of reunification with Taiwan. This aggressive posturing, coupled with a number of nations bristling at Chinese ambitions, make the sea one of the most likely flashpoints of great power conflict in the world today. So, as always, before we head out, we want to remind our listeners that we are doing a mailbag. If you would like to have your question read on air, please send it to us. And if, if it is as sufficiently ignorant and ill-conceived as the rest of the show is, then it'll fit right in and we will read your responses on air. Um, so <laughs> we will read our responses on air. So we want to thank all of our listeners for tuning into the Synopsis podcast. I'm Sam. And I'm Michael. And until next time, remember, nothing is to be feared, only understood. <laughs> The Synopsis Podcast is co-hosted by Sam Bach and Michael Williamson. Produced by Mark Fusito. Artwork by Eli Bach. <laughs>